Hello, and welcome to this week's Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest. Arab Digest is something of a rarity in Middle East analysis. Our daily newsletter has no sponsors, and we carry our podcasts without any advertising. It's our readers who support Arab Digest, and we intend to keep it that way. To find out how you can support a truly independent voice in the Middle East and North Africa, head to ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, check out how you can receive our reader-supported daily newsletter for two months for free. That's right, two months for free. In this world of information overload in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. With one article a day and the weekly podcast, we provide unique coverage of the Middle East and North Africa, featuring the very best experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Essential reading, essential listening from independent sources, and no overload. My guest today is Francis Gilles. Francis, a regular contributor to Arab Digest, is a specialist on security, energy, and political trends in North Africa and the Western Mediterranean. He is a senior associate research fellow at the Barcelona Center for International Affairs and a visiting fellow at King's College London. Francis, good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. Now, this Friday, 1st of March, you and Quentin Peel will be at King's College London to give a talk with an intriguing title, Reading History Wrong, The Plight of European Foreign Policy. And Francis, you will be focusing on how Europe has got it all wrong in the Middle East for many, many, many decades. So let us begin with Europe, which colonized the MENA region both before and after World War I. Has that colonial mindset persisted to the present day? Well, I would say it goes back even further. It goes back to Napoleon Bonaparte's conquest of Egypt in 1798. So it's more than two centuries. So the the main thing is that colonization or no colonization, uh, we the Middle East is always you know the the expression Middle East is an expression is an invention of the Victorian Foreign Office because that area was viewed from London, indeed from Paris later, and then from Washington, the Middle East, uh, because it was it was a key area on the road to India for the British, to the, to the empire, the crown of the jewel in India. So it's always been viewed from our perspective. And when uh, the former amb- US ambassador to Saudi Arabia gave a talk a few months ago, and he called it West Asia, because it all depends where you look at. So, of course, everything is predicated on our Western interests, or strategic oil or whatever it may be. And I think that is, it is this mindset more than a narrow colonial or neo-colonial mindset, which has continued to prevail despite all that has happened in the last 40, 50 years. That colonial mindset, though, because you look at the region and it was heavily colonized by European powers, and that, to my eye, still seems to mark some of the relationship quite strongly. Well, it it does, and one does not have to be a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn to believe in this, because in my paper, I have quoted from a talk that Michael Ancrum, Tory foreign secretary, shadow foreign secretary, gave in Georgetown in 2013, where he said, we have always misunderstood 
and in many ways misinterpreted, if not despised the Middle East. And he goes back to the, to the First World War. But there are a number of reasons for this. First, he said, when we succeeded the Ottomans, the, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in 1923, the, many Arabs thought we, the British or the French, would do a better job than the Ottomans, but it turned out not. And the reasons were, were multiple. One of the key reasons is that we, many of our leaders never understood the difference between Islam, Islamism, national Islam, Shiism, uh, Sunnism, all these things. They, they never really understood it. The second point, which of course everybody knows, is that oil dictated our policies because from the day in 1907 the Royal Navy switched to petrol to, uh, to fuel, that meant that finding the resource to fuel the Royal Navy became paramount. And hence the whole history of the Middle East, not the whole history, because the mandate in Palestine is different, but I mean, much of the policy the British and the French and then the Americans have pursued in the Middle East is predicated on getting sure you control or have access to the oil and then the gas, which have basically been the fuels of our modernity, which have helped our power for the last hundred years. So once you get that as the prevailing factor, then you're looking for stability, you're not encouraging reform, and in many ways, you could argue that the French and the British, right across the Middle East and North Africa, blocked modern movements, they blocked the younger ones whom they'd often educated in their reforms, and they tended to favour either the Muslim Brothers or the Ulema movement in Algeria or whatever. So you can call it neo-colonial, or you can just say that that area was subjected to what was viewed as our interests. That was what really mattered. And what the people wanted or did not want was a very secondary concern. The mandate in Palestine, of course, was a bit more, a bit different because um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a story in itself, uh, which is a very complicated story. But oil is the key factor. And of course, the late Victorian racialization of, of the world, of the blacks, of the Arabs, of the Asians, has changed in the last 30, 40 years. Nonetheless, uh, there is a lot left of that period, inevitably, because you can't rewrite history, you can't change people's minds. We have been taught in our history books, I'm 79, when I was at school in England, in, in my when I was six, seven years old, the map was still painted red. When I moved to France, the map was painted blue. So we still have, many of us still have that mindset. Uh, and it's maybe, maybe been reinforced by the fact that Israel has always viewed itself, as indeed the West has viewed Israel, as a bastion of the West, of Western ways of thinking, and it was often argued democracy, in that part of the world. So yes, our mindset has, is far from having changed all that much. And I quote Michael Ankrum Y, 
because Michael Ancrum is also the 13th Marquess of Lothian. He hails from one of the most distinguished liberal aristocratic families of Scotland, which has been at the heart of the establishment for more than 300 years. So this feeling that we despise the Arabs, that we don't understand them, that we've never really helped them to become modern, as I say, is not a loony left view. It also comes with Michael Ancrum and with Chas Friedman, uh, who retired as being US ambassador to Saudi Arabia um, about 15 years ago. It comes also from voices in the heart of the establishment. These are maybe minority voices, but they are powerful voices indeed, because they come from people whose record of um, of state service is unimpeachable. Mm. So, so yeah, entrenched attitudes. Um, you yourself deeply engaged with North Africa, and you've spoken on previous podcasts and written in our newsletter, the Arab Digest newsletter, about how Europe continues to misplay and misunderstand the southern Mediterranean countries. Uh, again, part of that 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 mindset. Can you see that changing anytime soon, Francis? Well, th there are moments when it has changed. In the 1970s and 1980s, if you go back, uh, General de Gaulle, President Giscard d'Estaing, President Mitterrand, and other leaders, Jimmy Carter in the States, English politicians like Lord Carrington, did weigh in on the Middle East and did try very honestly and very seriously of finding some kind of uh, ways of uh, getting the Palestinians and the Israelis to live with a minimum of peace and respect. So there were very serious attempts. Uh, and as late as 2003, when President Jacques Chirac and indeed Chancellor Schroeder of Germany opposed the American and UK and United Kingdom invasion of Iraq, there were still in Europe political leaders who were prepared to brave the animosity of, of America. And God knows uh, Chirac was treated badly and Schroeder was treated badly and say, what you are doing is completely wrong. In our longer term interests, it will not do to invade Iraq. Other things are changing in the world. China is rising. Iran is what it is. Saudi Arabia matters. Turkey will not eternally give the green light to everything we do in the Middle East, will not be our poodle. And at one point, the Turks will wake up. Well, they have woken up. So these politicians I've mentioned in France, in Britain, in America, some of them were lucid and they tried very seriously to change things. They were unable to do so. And in the last 20 years, Europe, in the last 25 years, Europe in particular has abdicated any role it might have wished to play in the Middle East. In economic terms, the process of Barcelona, which was launched from Spain, but with the full backing of France and Germany in 1995, was a very honest and serious attempt to modernize the economic relations between the two shores of the Mediterranean. And the Spanish were not the only ones in earnest. Uh, the Germans were serious, the French were serious, the Italians were serious. But then that 
effort, which was modest, more modest than its grand words sounded economically, that effort was destroyed by nine by the assassination of Rabin, first of all, one must say, then by 9-11, and the decision of the Bush administration to consider the Middle East as a bed of nails. When you're faced with a bed of nails, the only weapon you can use is a hammer. The hammer has been used endlessly since, and the result is a disaster. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. Because in your paper, you talk about the centrality of the Middle East and North Africa to global economic and political affairs. It is so important. And yet, as you say, Europe botched its opportunity in the last couple of decades. Uh, can, can you just place the Middle East and North Africa in just how important it really is and, and how that still leaders, Western leaders, are still failing to grasp the centrality and the importance in global economic and political affairs of the Middle East and North Africa? Well, I would say that the drift has come from the fact that uh, the idea of the war against terrorism, you can't fight an idea, you can't fight an oxymore. It's an oxymore, the whole thing. You know, you, you can fight terrorist acts, but you cannot, if you want to fight the ideas behind them, that is a different matter. And we have the example of what's going on today. You may fight Hamas and uh, more or less destroy Hamas, but you will not destroy the ideas which are behind Hamas. And that is the major dilemma. It's always been thus. But what has America or the West got to show for 22 years of fight against terrorism? I mean, the result is an utter disaster. Of course, we had to fight terrorist acts. But by turning terrorism, which has never been defined by the United Nations, because nobody agrees on what it means. I mean, the IRA were terrorists. Now their successors are in government. The ETA in Spain were terrorists. Now they participate in government. So one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. I mean, take Algeria during the War of Liberation. They were terrorists, and then they became the government. So it's an issue, I think, which, go, which goes to something deeper, is that not only did the Europeans and the Americans not realize, which maybe they couldn't have realized, that China would rise so, so very fast economically and hence politically and militarily, but they also misread Russia, you see, and that matters as well. Why did they misread Russia? Because they did not have a proper analysis. When the Soviet empire collapsed, we lived in this idea of the end of history, you know, this famous quote from Fukuyama, triumphant democracy and triumphant capitalism. Well, after 9-11 and the economic and the financial crisis of 2008, you would have thought the West would become a bit more modest and realize that it faced a very different world. So it misread the collapse of the Soviet Union, thinking that, well, they were down and out. And I had one of England's most senior analysts of Russia, Ministry of Defense, whose name I can't quote, who said to me in 2004, we are facing a collapse of strategic thinking. Whatever you think of what the West did in Russia, they misread Putin and we are paying the price. The same thing occurred in the Middle East and it's occurred in the West and it's occurred in Israel because 
beyond the atrocious acts committed by Hamas, which are terrorist acts, in October 2023, the problem is that Israeli security collapsed. They just didn't see it coming. The same thing occurs vis-a-vis Iran. We pile on, we pile on um, all these sanctions against Iran. Well, I have no truck for the Iranian regime, but what is the result? It's reinforced the regime so that at one point, you just have to understand or decide you've got to talk, you've got to negotiate. And the one man today, at least in France, who is articulating what I would call a goalist vision, but an intelligent nationalist vision of the Middle East is Dominique de Villepin, the foreign minister of Jacques Chirac, who in the United Nations in 2003 made a famous speech saying to the Americans, you are wrong. We will not agree to go to Iraq with you. He was vilified. Monsieur de Villepin on French television today is the only one of the few people who articulates this view. He's very eloquent. And having been foreign minister and prime minister, he has the experience to say that. There are very few voices today uh, you know, which articulate such um, a clear-sighted vision. And of course, for Monsieur de Villepin, and I would say for myself speaking personally, the security of Israel is paramount. The question maybe we should be asking ourselves is, do the Israelis really think that the policy their government has been pursuing in the last 20 years will bring them greater security? That is the question to ask as well. Mm-hmm. And one doesn't have to be pro or anti this or that uh, political leader. The question is, what is the efficiency? Is this policy working? And exactly as the American-led fight against terrorism has ended up in a huge mess, at huge cost to human lives, the money, all that, the same question should be asked today of Israel. This is the for me the European are the Europeans really asking that question because it matters to us practically more than it matters to the Americans. Why? Because we are very close by geographically. We have links with the Middle East, whether we call them neo-colonial or not, they're not all negative. The links between France and North Africa are far from always negative. The links between Britain and the Middle East are far from there are a lot of individual links, they're links of artists, of companies, of families. There are a lot of mixed marriages. So we shouldn't always look at this through the prism of pain, the pain we can inflict on the other. We should look at it positively. And so the question is, what do we do? You're listening to the Arab Digest podcast with me, William Law, and Francis Gillis, a MENA expert and visiting fellow at King's College London. Arab Digest is the truly independent voice on the Middle East and North Africa. No advertising and no sponsors. In the information overload world in which we all find ourselves, Arab Digest keeps it simple. One article a day and the weekly podcast from top experts, analysts, writers, and commentators. Check us out on ArabDigest.org. When you go to the website, be sure and look out for the offer of a free two-month trial to our reader-supported daily newsletter. So, Francis, you posed the question, what do we do? Well, what does Europe do? 
the big problem for Europe is that Europe has been, for 20 years, Europe gazed at its navel, invented itself a constitution, which its people didn't want, under the American umbrella. But they forgot about the Middle East, like they forgot about having a serious analysis of Russia after the 19, 1991. Yeah, and so now yeah. we are left with America running the show. Mm, yeah, well, let us talk about America. In in your paper that you're presenting uh, on Friday, you've got a wonderful quote attributed to Scooter Libby, who was the chief of staff to the then U.S. Vice President Dick Cheney. And this was in the run-up to the 2003 Iraq War. A scholar was brought in, a Middle East specialist, uh, to advise, and he strongly advised against the invasion, to which Libby replied, you understand history, we make it. Now, if it's the case that Europe has misread the Middle East and North Africa, how badly then has the U.S. misread it? And Francis, how guilty are we as Europeans of simply blindly following where America leads? Well, I don't think Europe is blindly following. I think Europe finds itself in a bind. One, because Europe is a collection of 27 states. And so running a foreign policy was always going to be very difficult, particularly when in Paris and London, each capital has its own sort of, uh, you know, it's got an imperial viewpoint, um, which dates back to the 19th and early 20th century. So it's very difficult. And Germany, which was deprived of a role after the war for well understood reasons on foreign affairs, is now being brought back into, into the fold. So it's very difficult. It goes back to the question of Henry Kissinger, when I ring Europe, who picks up the phone at the other end? Well, nobody does. That's the problem. And today, uh, this is a major, major issue. Uh, so very difficult to define a foreign policy for Europe. The question is, how did our elites or many among our elites, political, media and otherwise, misread what could be the what were likely to be the consequences of the collapse of the Soviet Empire? And you could say the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. We are still living with the consequences in the Middle East of the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, exactly as we are living in the Middle East and in Kashmir with the consequences of the collapse of the British Empire. The empire collapsed 60 years, 70 years ago. We are still very much living with the consequences. And it's that ignorance of history which our elites betray. In 2003, the foreign secretary, people may forget, the, the Labour Party, to its eternal shame, voted in favour of going into Iraq under the leadership of Tony Blair. But Robin Cook made a very powerful speech in Parliament. He resigned. It's probably the last time a senior British minister resigned on a, on a point of principle in the last 25 years, but he resigned. So some minds are very lucid. We had Robin Cook on one side. You had Chirac. You had Schroeder, so you did have voices. And in America, there were very few voices. I mean, Barack Obama, if I remember rightly. But there were very few voices. Because in America, there is a further element which people often forget. One often speaks of the Jewish lobby and its weight on your American politics. But one forgets the background of what has been called Christian Zionism. In other words, the idea which goes back to the dissidents who crossed to America in the early 17th century from England, the Protestant dissidents, that one day 
Zion would be recreated. The Jews would go back to the land they'd left thousands of years before. This idea it has always been powerful in certain groups of Protestants. It was then uh, Lord Shaftesbury in the middle of the 19th century in England was a statesman who, he's one of the people who, who, who mentioned this, who passed this on to a number of Jewish leaders of people who were fighting against discrimination and for the equality between Jews and Europeans and Christians. And then this idea grew into Zionism and we know what happened. So this eschatological element is very powerful because if you look at the America, you look at all these preachers, fundamentalist Christian preachers, they are preaching something which has been in Protestantism since the 17th century. And so it turns the whole conflict into a conflict of religions. And of course, a conflict between the three monotheistic religions can only end up in a bloodbath because it, there is no practical solution. It is mm. a religious belief. That is yeah. the difficulty. Yeah, very much difficulty. And and, and your, your thoughts on empire, because of course the, the Palestine-Israel situation is very much a legacy of the British Empire, the the Brits, as you suggested, uh, walked out of uh, the situation in India. They walked out of the situation in the Middle East and and really left the mess behind them. And you know, we tend to you know, there's a lot of finger pointing at Washington and and, and at the Americans. Why aren't you doing more? Why aren't you pressuring the Israelis more? But you know, you have to ask. We have to ask. What are we here in the UK doing to have any influence whatsoever on this terrible situation? that's going on in Gaza. Well, maybe, I mean, you know, the, 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 this belief that, of the, that the Jews had the right to return to Zion was very much believed by people like Arthur Balfour. People like Churchill were much more cynical. But the difficulty today may be that, funnily enough, since the collapse of the Soviet empire, my feeling is that the debate in Western think tanks and the media have um, deteriorated in quality. That there is today very often on all kinds of issues, I know it's not just uh, Israel or the, or the Palestinians, it's on all kinds of issues, there's a kind of doxa which forms, a conformist view which is shared by the majority of commentators uh, and it makes free and fair debate, uh, muscular debate, let's say, much more difficult. And this is, I think, one of the great dangers. And it doesn't only apply uh, to, uh, to the question of um, Israel and Palestine. It applies to Russia. One might find Mr. Putin a very distasteful character. <laughs> the least you could say. He's a bloody dictator. But at the same time, there is very little debate as, did we not mistake? How come for so many years, for 20 years, we got him wrong, or for at least the first 10 years of the century, most of our people got him wrong. And this friend or this person I know so well, who was one of the specialists of Russia at the Ministry of Defense in London said to me in 2004, the combination of a former KGD man and the mafia, and you remember how the Russian mafia spread into Europe. You remember that famous book, mm. Mac Mafia by Misha Glenny. Yes. Yes. Well, 
we didn't, many people just didn't put two and two together. But in the, in the corridors of power, the military probably put it together in Britain better than the civilians did. But many of our politicians thought they could do business with Putin. Well, I'm not an expert on Russia at all. But the question is, we misread the consequences or the risks. Let's say, the, what, what were the risks of the collapse of the Soviet empire? What did they entail? The fact that Russia has minorities in all these former, uh, I would call them colonies, which are now independent states. The same goes for the Middle East. Who in the corridors of power remembers that Dr. Mossadegh, the elected prime minister of Iran, was overthrown by a British-American plot and Mm -hmm. and the trial was brought back? Who remembers that? Everybody seems to have forgotten even modern history. And Mm. that is what is so damaging. So rather than finger pointing, we might revisit our history, including our imperial history. And as I say, I don't believe that the prism of pain will get us anywhere intellectually because emotions are one thing. But if you're always pointing your finger and you are the only one who's suffering and you can't even begin to think of the suffering of the other, then you're doomed to continue this violence, which Mm. is an absolute disaster. But we've got to think. And this is not a question of emotions. This is a question of thinking rationally. And this is why I am saying, is the policy pursued by Israel really in the long-term interests of the Israeli, of Israelis, Jews or Arabs? Is it in the interests of the broader region? Is it in our European interests? Let's be absolutely clear and blunt about this. That is the question I am asking. Do our elites have the capacity to think or to act if they find that some of the conclusions are not very comfortable? Do they have the capacity to change their policies Mm. and to to dare to change their policies and speak the truth? Because I suspect that speaking the truth to the Arab regimes, which have always manipulated the Palestinians and used them. No Arab regime has ever thought of the the rights of the Palestinian people. What do they care? Mm -hmm. So nobody cares about the Palestinians' rights. Well, this is a major problem because, you know, you won't airbrush, and this might be the conclusion, you can't airbrush the Palestinians out of the picture. It's just not possible. It's physically impossible. So, yes, yeah, that, that's quite right. Yeah, absolutely agree with you on that, Francis. And and so when Netanyahu and others say we're going to eradicate Hamas, we're going to uh, destroy, you, you cannot destroy an idea. Uh, and certainly the Palestinians have shown great determination, great courage in resisting being airbrushed out of out of history. And 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 the point you make, too, about security, the path that Netanyahu and uh, these extremist ministers are driving Israel down, will not give Israel security. It will give the opposite, insecurity, not just for Israel, but for the entire region. And so, yes, I do hope that policymakers, well, if they don't turn up to your uh, to your talk, they at least will listen to, uh, to the podcast and perhaps think again, because that's what we need to do is think again before well, this. I would also conclude, because obviously I'm quite prepared to share the burden of of guilt or whatever the Europeans might have done being a Frenchman of of an English mother. Uh, But I think also one should talk more often about 
the, the way the, the Arab regimes, not the people, the Arab regimes had been extremely guilty because they could have done much more than they have done over the last 50 years to push towards coexistence or some kind of solution. They have not. And so it, it, it's, it's not just a question of Europeans. Everybody's complicit in this game. Whatever the Russians do in the Middle East, do you think they care about the plight of the Palestinian people or in the Sahel about the, uh, the, the black people in the Sahel? They couldn't care less. It's a totally cynical game. Mm, and yes. if everybody is playing a cynical game, then the result will only be more bloodshed, more disaster. And we just don't know. We're sliding down a slope. and We don't know where we're going to end at this point. We just don't know. Yes. So and as all... you say, and as you say, Francis, uh, we are all complicit. And uh, that's that's a sobering thought and, and, and a thought I, I, I think we we can end on. So I, I thank you very much for your time today and I look very much uh, forward to your uh, your presentation on Friday. Thank you. My pleasure. My guest today on the Arab Digest podcast was the Middle East North Africa analyst Francis Giles. You'll have noticed that we bring you the podcast with no advertising and no sponsors. We are a truly independent source for analysis and commentary on the Middle East North Africa. If you'd like to support our independent voice, head to our website at arabdigest.org, where you can find out about our reader-supported daily newsletter and how to get a free two-month trial. The newsletter features the very best of MENA analysts, commentators, and writers, contributors like Francis. Check us out on arabdigest.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and search our library of over 200 podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, SoundCloud, or Amazon. Our podcast guests provide unique insights, insights you simply will not find anywhere else. Thanks for listening. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading, essential listening from independent sources. Thank you.